0: Welcome to Art Scoping. I'm your host, Max Anderson. Art museums continue to build expansions, such as that recently completed by the Museum of Fine Arts Houston. One institution has even made the unexpected choice to build a contraction, as the Los Angeles County Museum of Art seems intent on doing, yielding a smaller footprint for art displays than it had in the facilities it has just demolished. Notwithstanding the cheering from all quarters about growth, there's usually a downside the assumption of capital debt and a punishing annual debt service associated with it. According to the Los Angeles Times, LACMA now has nearly $822 million in debt. It will have to start paying back a $300 million loan from Los Angeles County to support the building project as of 2022. The first payment is set at $4.2 million, and the loan is not part of the overall fundraising total. Many museums have chosen to build satellites The Tate Gallery did so long ago in building Tate Modern, leading to the satellite becoming the mothership. The Seattle Art Museum famously stumbled years ago when building an office tower, only to have its lead tenant go bankrupt. And now, the Newark Museum is taking a similar risk on a mixed-use project in town. But the MCA Denver is taking a more responsible route by leasing some new property for programming, which we hear about from this week's guest.
1: Kevin McCoy, who created the first NFT in 2014, he said, we are at the conclusion of a 30-year arc of digitization, and we are on the cusp of a 30-year arc of tokenization.
0: That's Nora Burnett Abrams, the Mark G. Falcone director of MCA Denver since 2019. Her curatorial career began at the Metropolitan Museum of Art, where she worked on the exhibitions Sol LeWitt on the Roof and Robert Rauschenberg, Combines. Prior to becoming director of MCA Denver, she served for nearly a decade as its curator beginning in 2010, and since then has organized over 40 exhibitions and written or contributed to nearly a dozen accompanying publications, including a retrospective of American artist Tara Donovan. She leads the museum's senior team, setting strategies for operations, communications, marketing and fundraising, as well as augmenting its role as a cultural driver of the city's current unprecedented growth. She also worked at the Museum of Modern Art and has taught art history at New York University and lectured throughout the country on modern and contemporary art. She holds a B.A. from Stanford University, an M.A. from Columbia University, and a Ph.D. from the Institute of Fine Arts at New York University. Nora, welcome to Art Scoping.
1: Thank you for inviting me. I'm so happy to be here.
0: I'm glad we got you. I know things are busy in Denver, and (laughs) I wanted to start by talking a bit about your background. You're a native New Yorker with a lot of in-depth experience, as I mentioned, working at leading museums there. How did you find Denver's receptivity to the leading-edge programming of MCA Denver when you moved there in 2010? And how would you describe it today?
1: Uh, It's a great question. And I would say that, you know, on the one hand, I probably couldn't have been more of a New Yorker I had a driver's license, but I didn't even know how to drive when mm-hmm. I landed in Denver. And the kind of anxiety of how is, how is this all going to work mm-hmm. um, was so quickly alleviated because the community here of artists and museum professionals and board members and supporters of the arts was so positive and so excited and ready to kind of introduce me to whomever and make sure I saw this show and, oh, here's the critic from the Denver Post, et cetera. Everyone was so eager to help me settle in and to introduce me to the extremely exciting and robust cultural community that was present in 2010. And that has only grown kind of more exciting and dynamic uh, in the 12 years since.
0: And I guess in the West, Colorado's unusual as a blue state and a place of receptivity to free expression and open ideas and the like. And I assume in the last decade, that's increased.
1: I think that there is a legacy of the pioneering spirit, if you will, of the 19th century as fraught and complicated uh, as that term and identifier is. But there is a sense here just in the DNA of those who live here of, let's try something on. Let's take a risk. We're curious about something. Let's see what will materialize if we do things a little bit differently. Or yeah. there was a really pronounced receptivity to being adventurous, yeah. taking risks, etc.
0: And at the same time, you mentioned fraught. So art museums across <laughs> the country are being called out today by staff and by community members for being out of touch. How do you and your senior team grapple with the need to balance a community focus with a quest for curatorial independence?
1: Yeah, I guess I don't see them as, I don't see being community focused and having curatorial independence as necessarily in conflict. A lot of what we do aims to highlight the issues and and questions that our audiences are curious about and are reckoning with and confronting in their own lives, that very much mirrors what artists are exploring and questioning themselves. And so we certainly, with our curatorial program, have tried to raise to the surface how artists, for example, are responding to a particular idea or issue or challenge. Um, And we feel like that builds a kind of connection and relationship with our audiences. But I think it obviously goes quite beyond that in that we are very much committed to celebrating and supporting local creative life as well. You know, we have local artists who serve on our board. We have many people on staff who are artists. Um, yeah. While that doesn't necessarily distinguish us from other art museums across the country, I think our intentionality in heeding What our audiences are seeking from cultural organizations, from museums specifically, is definitely being fed back into it. We are very much digesting that. We even created a new role over the last year and a half, the title of which is, you know, a marketing and community specialist. Somebody whose sole focus is to really build and invest in relationships with different community stakeholders from across the city, not just the ones that we already have really strong connections with.
0: Part of that is championing artists who deserve a spotlight. At the Whitney, we showed Ryan McGinley's first solo show. Sylvia Wolf was the curator, and he was 25 years old. You did a 2017 exhibition of early photographs and Polaroids, taking Mm -hmm. us back. Mm -hmm. Tell us Mm -hmm. about how you assess his early work and how, moving into digital photography, his work changed.
1: Sure. Well, and I would say, you know, we very much kind of paid homage to that show um, at the Whitney. It was so seminal in his development. Um, But what actually drew me to Ryan's work at that, you know, in 2016, when I was developing the project was that we were showing an exhibition uh, that was going to open in 2017 of early works by Jean-Michel Basquiat that had never been shown before. And that were, they were so early in his career was before anyone He hadn't had his first show at PS1 or hadn't been in the Times Square show. You know, he hadn't kind of even emerged at that point. But we, you know, there were these notebooks and clothes and works on paper, et cetera. What it spoke to was a sense of downtown New York City life in the late 70s and early 80s. And there's so much romance, again, as problematic and fraught as that time was. There's a kind of romance to what the creative Community of artists and performers and writers, et cetera, built at that time. And I think Ryan and his friends in the early 2000s were responding to and emulating directly or indirectly to what they had seen and what they had taken from what they knew about that early downtown scene. And so I really framed Ryan's exhibition as a response to the Basquiat exhibition. That was one of the reasons we featured so prominently um, his Polaroid project, which for for those who may not know, for about four years, Ryan took a Polaroid of every single person who came over to his apartment. Um, and so the project, you know, kind of culminated with about over 10,000 Polaroids that he had saved um, and stored, and they hadn't been shown before. And it was really important to us to have that as a, almost like a, a thread that, that wrapped the, the entire yeah. floor on which his exhibition was mounted to show like the real living, the unromantic uh, mm-hmm. view of this close knit community of artists and performers and writers kind of 20 years, you know, the next generation after Basquiat and his cohort uh, kind of came on the scene.
0: And there's not much more fleeting than a Polaroid, which, (laughs) for a very young audience may not know, these things are not destined to last. (laughs) What about the way when he moved into digital photography, he changed a bit his focus, if I can use that word?
1: Absolutely. And our exhibition actually ended right before, I think the latest work was from about 2004. Um, Mm -hmm. So it was right before he took his first road trip, where he really kind of left the gritty raw kind of imagery of lower Manhattan that he and his friends had really dominated and started moving into landscapes and the countryside and bodies that were nude and finding the beauty of the sinuous body reflected in nature and the natural world. We didn't even go there. We really kept a kind of cap at, at 2004 before he left the city.
0: You mentioned downtown New York. Denver Mm -hmm. has a downtown. You've Mm -hmm. got all sorts of interesting spaces that are available for programming. You have a new arrangement with the Denver Cultural Property Trust to create an arts hub at the Mm -hmm. Holiday Theater. Were you influenced by other offsite models at museums and what are you hoping to accomplish there?
1: Uh, Yes, very much. So I would say that, yes, we have a downtown. And yes, there um, there are areas of the city that have historically um, really been dominated by artists. Those communities have really disappeared over the last, especially over the last 10 years. For a lot of smaller arts organizations and for artists themselves, finding a place that is affordable and that is close to kind of the urban core, if you will, um, has been ever more challenging. And I think COVID probably only exacerbated that. Stepping back a couple of years, um, when I became director, I really put forward this vision to the board and to our staff and to our kind of larger community that I really viewed MCA as, as potentially being what I refer to as a decentralized museum, meaning we have our kind of core foundational space on Delgany Street and our beautiful building designed by Sir David Adjaye, but that we could live differently in different ways in different parts of the city. And I think, frankly, with COVID, we learned how to live in the cloud and we did a ton of virtual programming, which we're still doing. Um, But I really um, always held fast to this notion that if we were in a different space, we could in, um, kind of advance our mission and fulfill our vision differently than what we can do in our current building. And so it's was always really attracted to think about different spaces as new opportunities for us to expand um, our programmatic vision. And uh, when the, the building that houses this theater went on the market last fall, I reached out to some of my board members, um, including Mark Falcone, who um, was just building what would become that this investment vehicle, this uh, Denver Cultural Property Trust, that is a nonprofit entity that acquires property on behalf of cultural organizations um, and, and other creatives yeah. to essentially shore up space for these organizations. But because it's um, supported by, or um, those who are lending to the trust are, impact investors, even traditional lenders. The the point is, is that there isn't the demand for high market rate of Mm -hmm. return. Um, And so it can be a fairly reliable, but it has to be reliable, but it can be a fairly conservative rate of return for those investors, because what it's doing, therefore, is allowing us to lease the space um, at very favorable terms, well below market rate. Um, And as you know from uh, leading multiple museums, um, you know, taking on a new space, yeah. finding, you know, building a new building, something like that just takes enormous resource, capital of, you know, not just financial capital, but time and, and attention. And that wasn't really what I wanted to do. I wanted to kind of just hit the ground running um, and really focus on the partnership component of, of yeah. the program there.
0: Yeah. And I hope it's a model, I'm concerned when museums embark on ventures that do require a purchase as the Seattle Art Museum Mm -hmm. did years ago and Washington Mutual went belly up and they faced enormous debt service issues. And Newark has now announced it's doing a commercial real estate deal, which I think is a cautionary moment as well. But it's an innovative idea. What are the considerations you undertook before going this route?
1: To your point, I wasn't interested in acquiring space. So I did have a conversation, for example, with Jill Medvidau to talk about how she um, had approached the watershed um, that ICA Boston has been programming now for I think it's they're in their third or fourth year. And just what is it, you know, what motivated her to think about a different space in a different part of the city? what have been the opportunities and what have been the challenges there. And that was really helpful. And and speaking with other colleagues, of course, um, from other parts of of the country, but I will say that what really motivated me was the opportunity to, and this is different from from ICA Boston, we are the kind of anchor tenant, if you will, of this property, and we will be taking on the theater and the the lobby space in front, which is about 2000 square feet. Um, But we very much know that we will not be the only ones Mm -hmm. activating that space, that through collaboration, through co-creation, by incubating other um, smaller organizations um, focused on performance or visual arts, that we can really do a lot more to support kind of cultural life in the city by sharing this um, with, with as many organizations as need and want to be a part of it. So it will be an MCA Denver space, and and we are obviously the ones signing the lease. But we very much hope that uh, over the course of the week, for example, once we are fully up and running, that you will you know be able to experience something from a performing arts organization. Mm-hmm. That the high school that is across the street will be having practice there, rehearsal there. You know that that it will be humming with the energy and creativity of so many others. Um, and I think that is. That was a huge driver for us in taking this
0: on. You mentioned that David Adjaye designed the 27,000 square foot facility Mm -hmm. you've occupied since the fall of 2007, and it was his first U.S. museum commission, but it's been almost 15 years. Are you Mm -hmm. running out of space, A, and B, (laughs) does the expansion to the new space make you rethink how to use your primary facility?
1: It's such a great question. And the answer to the first part is yes, absolutely. I think that we have always had um, a kind of creative ambition that exceeded the four walls of this building. Our building, if, uh, and for your listeners who have yet to uh, maybe visit us, yeah. it is one of the most elegantly apportioned uh, museum spaces that I've ever had the privilege to either visit or work in. And so for presenting contemporary art or art from any time period, frankly, it is so generous and it is so accommodating the, the use of natural light is incredible, but for the other things that we do at the museum are kind of more adventurous and unconventional programming, our, our space just doesn't have as much capacity to support those larger crowds and a larger audience. So we, over the last 10 years, Max, we've found spaces across the city um, to, to host our programs or to house our programs because we had these great ideas. We just um, needed, um, an increase in capacity to be able to produce them. So we yeah. finally feel like we've we've found a space that really matches the um, ambition of our vision. And so mm-hmm. we're very excited to be able to produce all of those programs. And it does afford, um, again, for, for your listeners who may not have visited us, um, our lower level is a kind of multi-purpose space. It can host programs, but it also does um, present Exhibitions. And there's always been a kind of tension between, well, is it an exhibition space or is it yeah. a program space? Um, and so I think now that conversation is concluded, it's an exhibition space. Right. Um, and we can then more wholeheartedly kind of conceive projects for that area, um, knowing that we won't have to um, accommodate a program within it.
0: And that's today. And you're a non collecting institution. Yes. Which, of course, gives you maximum freedom in exhibitions and in programming. But artists need to sell art to put food on the table, and that's a pressure for a lot of your colleagues. The Perez in Miami, the ICA, you mentioned Jill, and the Hammer all turned to collecting in contemporary art. What would have to change for MCA Denver to go that route?
1: Well, I think so many things, probably. (laughs) Um, We've would rather, and and what we do instead is we, you know, we provide um, commissions and uh, fees to artists uh, when we work with them on exhibition and program projects. And in fact, even when someone does something as light as uh, an Instagram takeover, we compensate them for their time and their their efforts. So we certainly support artists. And we also encourage those who are collectors in the city and the region to um, connect with the artists that we're showing. And certainly a number have um, definitely acquired works from artists, you know, by artists, you know, whom we have shown. And that feels like a way to kind of extend the relationship beyond the museum. But we have, you know, the Denver Art Museum and the Clifford Still Museum and the Vance Kirkland Museum here in Denver do a very good job of, you um, mounting and and collecting and acquiring and preserving their collections, I don't think that there needs to be any more competition. It's Um, so
0: different from New York, as you remember, Nora. I mean, here, (laughs) there's the old joke that when Manhattan was being purchased, the one piece of advice was, don't build five contemporary art museums on that little (laughs) island. And yet we did. And so you're saying there's a rational, harmonious view of life culturally. Yeah, I
1: Um, you know, we have really strong relationships with our um, museum peers in the city, and we each do very different things. And I think we all very much respect and support the efforts of the other. I will also say Denver doesn't necessarily have as um, dense a, a collecting population. And so it would for us to start building a collection would have us in competition unnecessarily. Um, And so I don't think that that would be um, to anyone's benefit.
0: I think that may just be a New York affliction.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's Texas too, right? Um, yes. <laughs> uh, but I think, to be honest, what I love about being in a non-collecting museum, and we recently hired, or it's about a year ago now, um, a curator, Miranda Lash, who came from collecting institutions, The Speed and New Orleans Museum of Art. And she was like, when she first started here, she was like, wait a second, I don't have to prepare for an acquisitions committee, and uh-huh. I don't have to think about an exhibition with an eye toward acquiring something out of that exhibition. And Mm -hmm. I said, no, you just get to do temporary projects. (laughs) Um, So I think creatively, it's really exciting. And it also allows us to be extremely responsive to what's happening in the world. You know, I had a hole in my schedule earlier this year, um, because of COVID, we were taking a show and it got delayed. And so with six months before um, it was going to open, I had to think on my feet. And what I did is I commissioned four artists from Colorado to create new work in response to the events of 2020. And mm-hmm. it was amazing. And I think being able to act quickly and to engage very directly and immediately with the ideas and issues that are so top of mind, not just for the artists, but certainly for our audience feels yeah. extremely gratifying
0: and an example of that is the four-part series you just presented on the rise of nfts and i have to say of all the noise about nfts this was among the clearer introductions to this new enterprise could you sum up what you think the responsibilities of museums to be with regard to nft acquisitions and presentations
1: well i think i would even go further than presentations and acquisitions, I think NFTs and really maybe blockchain specific uh, more, more broadly mm-hmm. um, has the potential to kind of disrupt or dislodge some of the power structures that really stand up a lot of these institutions, um, yeah. thinking about fractional equity, thinking about co-acquisitions, thinking about ways that the technology allows for clarity of provenance, clarity of ownership, Um, that it kind of solves for some of the more murky aspects of acquisition policy um, that museums have been facing. And I think as museums look to the challenge of continuing to collect and conserve and take care of and store um, works of art, um, having all of that data enshrined in blockchain, I think is a solution to consider. I've heard from museum directors who thought I was totally nuts for even thinking of doing a program on NFTs because it was so beneath an art museum to do it. I don't share that view. I think that when you have a phenomenon that, you know, punctures popular culture the way this has, it's our duty to reckon with it, you know, good or bad, who cares? It's the here and it's here to stay. Um, And I think that um, one of the artists we interviewed in episode two of this program, Kevin McCoy, who created the first NFT in 2014, he said, we are at the conclusion of a 30-year arc of digitization, and we are on the cusp of a 30-year arc of tokenization. And that to me was so profound because it really spoke to this You know the fact that we don't know where this is going to take us. We don't know which direction, for good or for evil, frankly, it's going to head in. But it is something that is here, and it is going to evolve in in potentially magnificent ways. And it's on us to listen to and pay attention to the artists and creatives who are engaging and experimenting with it. Because as we all know, when artists take hold of something like this, it really opens it up and allows us to see it from multiple perspectives. Um, So I think that it. Um, is incumbent on museums to take it seriously and engage with it, that might be as an exhibition, that might be as a procedural policy, it might be as a way to continue to support artists. Um, there, there are just, um, I think, myriad ways and opportunities that lie ahead.
0: And speaking of supporting artists, you're not only looking at blockchain, you're looking at the local scene. Yeah. And you have a program called the Octopus Initiative, which is fascinating. It gives <laughs> the public the opportunity to borrow art as a means of championing artists. Tell us about this initiative.
1: Yes, so the idea was, um, actually Max, it's similar to a question that you asked earlier, which was, we were thinking internally, how could we provide support to artists? Well, number one is to collect their work. Okay, well we're a non-collecting museum, so how do we get around that? And what we landed on was this project called the Octopus Initiative, which acquires work from an artist, 25 works, Um, And the commission includes a fee for those 25 works, as well as a stipend to support studio and material expenses for about a year. So it's a twenty thousand dollar commission. And the artists produce works that are all within a a similar size. Um, They all have to be framed. And then we make those works available through a lottery system to the general public. And if you are a resident of the Metro Denver area, you can register to borrow one of these artworks for free. You can then live with it for 10 months, so just about a year. Um, We needed to hedge, assuming that people weren't gonna return things exactly on time. Uh, And what it does is it builds connections between those who borrow the works and the artists who make our city so interesting and full of vibrancy. And it also allows us to directly support uh, the artists who we prize and value um, with material means to continue their practice. And what's been great is that a number of artists um, who have participated in the Octopus Initiative, we have 16 to date, they have received commissions from people who have borrowed their works, who are like, I don't wanna give this back. Will you make me, you know, can I buy a new work? And, and it just um, also affords them the chance to you know take a residency, take a, a sabbatical from work focus on creating a new body of work, et cetera, et cetera, that um, allows for the kind of creative development that we also wanted to prioritize with this project.
0: It's clever because it also has limits around it. It's Mm -hmm. not that you're being banged on the door by every artist in Denver saying, where's my (laughs) show? It's it's helpful, it's a filter. It's a good thing to have, Sure,
1: sure. And we do also show artists um, in exhibitions and in group exhibitions whenever we have large scale group exhibitions. We do always, but
0: Nora. How do you balance the advocacy of artists in your region with artists nationally and internationally? Then,
1: um, and I, I think um, integration is the the name of the game for that. Um, I think no artist wants to be um, sequestered into a quote local artist um, gallery or program, and I think. What we have done and what we've heard, um, you know, the feedback we've received from the artists we've shown at the museum is the fact that it is so full, you know, that their work is so fully integrated with our larger program is what is most meaningful and um, and helpful in their career and their development. Um, you know, there are artists who have been in our exhibitions, um, and it's allowed them to gain tenure or um receive major grants or fellowships you know all of that and so we see um, our role in bringing artists you know you know kind of incorporating their work within a larger group show or even as a solo exhibition um, as really core to our ability to advocate and to champion them
0: most of your peer institutions like ICA Philadelphia or cam in Houston or the Wexner Center the drawing Center here in New York are in cities with large municipal art museums like you that include contemporary art collections and exhibitions. Do you have a forum just for non-collecting museums, or is it more informal than that? And how do you differentiate work from, say, the Denver Art Museum in that sense?
1: Yes. um, There is a a cohort um, called the Contemporary Art Museum Directors uh, that is about 40 members strong and it's um, organizations from all over the country. Um, and I have to say, uh, certainly the first few months of the pandemic, it was such an amazing resource. And we were, we would have weekly calls to just talk about, okay, how are you handling this? How are you handling that? Um, because we were all kind of fumbling in the dark together. Uh, and uh, that communication and that peer network has been, Vital. I mean, even before COVID, but certainly as a result of it. Um, and I think, you know, we also have a, a strong network of peers, um, you know, of different scales, certainly uh, in Denver. And, you know, the, the analogy that I like to use, Max, is that, you know, the Denver Art Museum is this kind of august Institution, it, it shows up as a limousine. You know, it's stately and grand and um, a little, maybe moves a little bit more slowly because it's so big. Um, and MCA Denver is on a motorcycle and we can kind of rev up or slow down. We can cut corners. We can round the corner really fast. Um, and that is, um, I think, a, a way to frame how we see our role, um, which is, again, to be that kind of quick to respond, recognizing something that we see in an artist studio and saying, you know what, I think I might have a chance to work with you in six months. Like, Mm -hmm. are you game? And they're like, yes, let's do it. You know, and I think um, our ability to move quickly, um, the word nimble has been so overwrought and overused over the last year. But we were practicing that, um, I think, very much even well before the pandemic. And that is yeah. a great source of pride because it allows us to continue to advance, you know, the, kind of the most exciting and adventurous ideas that are are being experimented with right now. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And I just saw there's a new motorcycle that's being debuted <laughs> that can fly, which is going to be offered to market next year. Maybe that'll be your vehicle of choice. Nora, thank you for making time to be on Art Scoping. I really appreciate it.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure.
0: We've been speaking today with Nora Burnett-Abrams, the Mark G. Falcone Director of MCA Denver. Until next time, this is Max Anderson of Artscoping.